Um, if you've been with us all semester, you know that we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking again uh, at Ephesians in chapter 4 today, but it's real important that you understand what is happening at this point in the letter. I can't stress it enough, so I try to say it as, as cl- plainly as I possibly can. Chapters 1 through 3 were all about gospel indicatives, these ideas of like who you are in Christ. These things that are true about you. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, if you're a Christian, these things are true about you. And then there's a shift going on in chapters 4 through 6 where Paul is going to talk about what it looks like to now live out the Christian life. We said that from the very beginning, we're looking at the book of Ephesians so that you can get a good picture of what it looks like to actually be a Christian. And the reason that that I say that is because there's so much confusion in some ways about what in the world a Christian really is. So Paul is trying to say that here's a picture of what a Christian is, and here is a picture of what a Christian does. And they both go hand in hand, chapters 1 through 3 and 4 to 6. Now, why in the world would Paul say, I want to tell you what is true about you and now what to do in this back half? Very simple. It is because he knows that you cannot do the gospel life without first having the gospel resources to do that life. It would be like trying to put, go on a trip without any gas in your tank. To try to take your final exam the first week of class. It just can't happen. You need gospel resources to be able to live the gospel life. And so the first half of the book of Ephesians has been, quote, filling the tank. And now we're shifting. And we're going to start drawing on that. Does that make sense? It sort of makes sense what he's doing. Big shift tonight in the way of what's going on. So that's what's going on. I want to be able to read from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. If you have your paper, turn your eyes there. If you want to use your Bible, by all means, whatever floats your boat, uh, but follow, follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, this is Paul talking, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, he's citing the Old Testament when he does this, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the same, to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, 
who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is God's word. I pray that we would hear it and that we would live. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word to us. We pause even now just to ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears. We're stubborn people, O oh Lord. We may not want to admit it, but deep down we don't want to do what you tell us. Um, we're scared. We don't know things, and we're scared to admit that we're needy. So I pray that you would be gentle with us tonight and that you would remind us of the gospel as you speak to us. Free us, O oh Lord, to listen for these next 25 minutes or so and ask that you would make much of your own name. Amen. So um, imagine you look down at your cell phone tomorrow and you had a voicemail. And on that voicemail was the President of the United States inviting you to come to dinner. All the stops were being pulled out. Seven courses, the best food money could buy, the most vintage wines that the world had to offer, expensive china, the most beautiful arrangements with the freshest of seasonal flowers, and it was all for free. You were going to be picked up by Air Force One and flown to the White House for dinner. Now, imagine you're there. And imagine for a moment that at each point along the way, when the course selections came out, you kept saying, yikes, I know that costs a lot. I'll just take the iceberg lettuce salad, please. Or imagine every time a new course came out, a new course came out, you reached in your pocket to begin to try to pay the wait staff for the estimated value of the lamb or of the potatoes or whatever it is that tickles your fancy. If, if this were to happen, it would be appropriate for your host to come over to you and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You were invited here freely. I want you to dine freely. The host is saying, you were invited here by grace. Why now are you changing the whole paradigm, feeling like you have to begin paying for what I've already given you. I want you to come in grace and I want you to go on and eat freely. Yes, eat, but eat freely. I share that story with you because that is what this shift in Ephesians actually represents. Paul is saying, I want you, look with me, verse 1, to work, walk worthily of your calling. You, if you are in Christ tonight... We're called in nothing but grace. He says, I want you to continue to walk out the Christian life that way too. Paul is going to tell us important things in this text about the Christian life, but properly about Christian life in the body. What it looks like to relate to other Christians. And that body is called the church. And Paul is going to say three things about life in the body. Here they are. First, that life in the body requires unity. Secondly, that life in the body, life in the body expects diversity. And then thirdly, life in the body anticipates maturity. 
First of all, life in the body requires unity. Now, this point is going to be longer than the other two. So just don't freak out if I go long, okay? I'm, I've got it. All, they're not all going to be this long is what I'm trying to say, okay? So just chill for a little bit. First of all, what is Paul getting at? He wants us to see that unity is in particular in two forms. First of all, there is a unity in practice. Where do we see this? Look at this verse Verse 2 here, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. And verse 3, eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now what is he getting at? Paul is saying, I want you all to be united. I want you to be one in the way that you treat one another. Therefore, in practice, look, Paul is saying Christians are to walk. And anytime you hear the word walk, that is a metaphor for living out the Christian life. Okay? He is saying with all humility, gentleness, with patience and love. You'll notice that this refers to our relationships with people, right? You see that? So he's saying that part of the thing about unity is that it's unity in practice. I'll put it in some the way that we're to treat one another would be singularly marked with humility, patience, and love. That's the way that we're supposed to live out with one another. Unity. But it's also, secondly, not second point yet, but also it's unity in substance. And this is where I need for you to take your thinking cap out of your pocket, unfold it, and put it on for a second. Because we're about to dig in a wee bit. Okay? So hang with me on this. What he is saying is, is that this right here also requires a unity of substance. You see, here's what he means. Unity always requires some sort of set of beliefs about God, ourselves, and the world around us. When you think of a sports team, they are united, but they're united around something. Right? Does that make sense? I don't care if you love butterflies. You might have the butterfly club. But if it's the butterfly club that you're in and you love, you are united around something. And that something is those little winged creatures called butterflies. Here's the point. They are, you, you cannot be united around nothing. Sorry for the double negative. Something always holds you together. And the same goes with Christianity. There are always certain beliefs and practices that hold us together. And Paul enumerates them in verse 7. One spirit, one hope, one baptism, and so on and so forth. I'm putting a point on it. Paul is saying that what you believe, not just if you believe, but what you believe really matters. Charles, Spur- um, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. To remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one even as we are one? In John 17, 22. Listen to this. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is actually hazardous. That's pretty impressive to me. Two implications from this for two sorts of people, still in the first point. First, for Christians. Second, for those of you that would call yourself non-Christians. First of all, for the Christians. Listen up. 
What this means is that what you believe really does matter. And that content, that substance of what you believe is called dogma or doctrine. You see, it won't do, you see, to say, you know what? What we believe really doesn't matter. Who needs that doctrine or theology stuff? And do you know why that won't do? Two reasons. One, not only is it an unbiblical idea to make that statement. That's just unbiblical altogether. But the statement that we don't need doctrine is actually a doctrinal statement itself. So it just doesn't hold water. Y'all, here's what I'm trying to say. This means that as a Christian, you need to begin to ask questions about what it is that you actually believe in. What are those what is that claim? What are those truth claims you actually believe in? No, you don't have to have all the answers yet. I don't have all the answers. I'm still learning at 34 years old. But here's what you must see. That Christianity has always been a thinking man or a thinking woman's religion. You cannot just float through with no convictions whatsoever. It just doesn't work. You've got to believe in something. And that's what Paul is getting at here. You will never hear me in RUF say, leave your brain at the door before you come in here. Never. I want you to think. I want to engage your mind and your heart. Now, lest you think that you can just be okay with a sort of getting all the right beliefs down, that's not what I'm saying either. Listen to this. I'm going to put this very simply. If you have all the right doctrine in the world, but you are actually a jerk to people, and you have no love or devotion to Christ, chances are you don't truly grasp the doctrine you say you believe. Our theology is meant to be born out in love and enjoyment of Christ. If you have all of your doctrine lined up perfectly and hate people, you've missed the mark. And that's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus says. So right doctrine alone is not enough. You have to see that. Second implication. This is potentially for folks that would consider themselves non-Christians. And it has to do with the fact that Christianity itself asserts that there are certain truth claims about it. Hang with me. Thinking cap still on. Christianity is saying we actually believe in something. And a lot of that something sometimes is actually from the outside looking in, very exclusive. So you might have heard something like this. I don't believe in Christianity because they believe that there is only one way to God and it's through Jesus. I just don't see how that can be true. After all, aren't we each to find our own way to God? And isn't that what's important? You see, you may have heard something like this. And perhaps you might hold it yourself. And if you do, that's okay. I'm not, I'm, what I'm about to say is I'm not coming after you. I love you. You're cool. I think you're awesome, that sort of thing. I'm here to do business with the argument itself. So please remove the personal element from it, okay? I'm here to do business with the argument itself. In short, here's it said simply. It's the problem with Christianity's exclusivity. Here we go. Think about it this way. I get this idea from two people in particular, a guy named Tim Keller and Leslie Newbegin. And it's remarked like this. How can there be just one way to God? I like to think that there are many paths to God. 
We're all just climbing up the same mountain, but we are taking different paths to the top. Don't raise your hand. How many of you have heard of this? Okay? All roads lead to the top. That sort of thing. The top being God, the mountains being the different religions of the world. I'm sustaining an argument, thinking cap's still on. Don't you know that if we are the person saying all roads lead to the top, that this assumes a privileged, exclusive vantage point by which to judge all other vantage points. It's to look on the climbers and say, each one of them thinks that they are the only one on the mountain. But I'm the one who really knows what's going on. I have this exclusive vantage point that can see all the religions out there and tell you that they're all going to God. And don't you see that doing that is the very thing that that voice is objecting against in Christianity. It's an exclusive claim. Here's what I mean to say. That inclusivity is really covert exclusivity. Everybody is exclusive at some point. It's just a matter of being exclusive about what? Listen to it like this. When people say this, they have this sort of objection. Objection. When asked, they want it and they say, well, we want the unity of humankind so that we may be saved from disaster. But listen to how Newbegin responds. Christians also want that unity. And therefore, seek truth by which alone humankind can become one. And that truth is not a worldview or even a religious experience. And it's certainly not to be found in repeating abstract nouns like justice and love. It is in the man, Jesus Christ, in whom God is reconciling the world. The truth is personal, concrete, and historical. I know that that is a lot. You can take your thinking caps off now and just exhale. Here's the point. Life in the body body requires unity. And it's always centered on the person of Jesus. But life in the body also expects diversity. Here's what I mean. Let's take a look. In verse 7, Paul says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What is he saying? Think about it like this. In Roman culture, if you were to have gone, if you were the emperor, and you would have conquered a land, say, far off, you would have taken all of the, the loot, all of the booty. Yes, I just said booty in a sermon. You would have brought that booty back that loot back to your people. And as you were going through the streets, you were just throwing it out. Think Mardi Gras and beads. You're so rich, you've got so much coin, you're just throwing out gifts because you've got it all. That's what this is when it says that, that Christ has descended and ascended and He has given gifts in the train of that thing. Now look here. What this means is, is that Christ has given to His people spiritual gifts. There are some listed in this paragraph. Pastors, apostles, teachers, 
evangelists, prophets. But that list is meant to go with two other lists as well in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And that's where you get the lump sum of our spiritual gifts. And here's the thing, y'all. Every single one of you, at the moment you were converted, were imparted with spiritual gifts. And none of y'all, including me, has all of the gifts. And so now do you begin to see why diversity is so important in the body? Because that means Parker has got gifts that Chloe doesn't have. And Carter's got gifts that Paige doesn't have, that Ryan doesn't have. Because Christ saw fit to give those gifts how He wanted to, and nobody's got them all. Think about it like this. How many of you have ever heard the, the um, musical piece from that movie, 2001, The Space Odyssey? It's like this. Bum, 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 dun, 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 dun. And I was thinking about it like this. What if you were like the timpani player? That's the thing. It was dun, 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 dun. For that orchestra. And you're like, telling your friends, you got to come over to my house. You got to check out this new piece I got. You whip out your score, and it's like the conductor starts, and you're just resting, just counting out the beats. And then you're like, dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. It's a boring piece. You need the trumpets. You need the violins. Yes, there's even one of those little triangle things in there going like this. It's going around if you listen to it. And the point is that you need everything to make it sound beautiful. It stinks just the timpani. It stinks just the violins. And what Paul is saying is, is that the body requires diversity to make it beautiful. To make it beautiful. I just want to ask you a question. Do you believe that your gifts that God has given to you are actually essential for the use in a body? I say this encouragingly. If you are not in a church you're hurting the church that you could be in by not being there. You alone have gifts that that church needs. And that it is waiting on you to show up because of what you bring to the table. God has given you, by His Spirit, real gifts for the good of the people of God. I want you to think about that and go, whoa, I've never thought about that. Because I don't like to preach or I don't like to what... It doesn't matter. God has given you some sort of gift. And you're meant to be a blessing. Part of that symphony, so to speak. Lastly, life in the body anticipates maturity. Very simply, Paul says that the whole point of unity and diversity is for the body, ready, to grow up. 
to grow up. In verses 13 through 17, let's just read a couple of these things. Do you see them there? Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, so that we may no longer be children. Here's the point. The point of your gifts is to bless the church such that it would grow up. So that it would be mature. And the last thing that you would want for anybody, it's two words, anybody, is for it to be immature and lacking. That is not a good thing. But you know what's real interesting? Do you know what the mark of immaturity is? Did you see it there? You're tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine. That's why I said truth really does matter. It absolutely matters. Listen, it was precisely the diversity that made, um, that made the, the body itself The diversity that makes it up is the thing that is going to bring about the maturity in the body. I want you to think about it like this. Let's return to this idea of a body. A body. Think human body. Okay? Think human body. When I was in college, I spent my summers working in the operating room. I was pre-med, and it was a killer job. But... If some of y'all get grossed out, just like grab onto your friend's hand or something here because this might be gross. One of the jobs that I had to do was that um, every time that we had an amputation in surgery, somebody's like leg got cut off because they had bad blood supply to their feet. It was my job to take that leg seriously, to the morgue in a little red biohazard bag. And I can just remember time and time again walking down there with a foot or a leg. I know it's kind of funny. That's all right. I'm holding this bag going, man, this thing is no, is, it's useless now. It's useless. It can't move a body anymore. It can't jump. It can't make a body jump. It doesn't support a body anymore. And then I often thought too, there's now a body without a foot. And that body cannot function properly now because it's missing a foot. Why do I tell you this? I want you to know that if you are an isolated Christian, two things are happening. First of all, you're dying. You're cut off. The reason that you are perhaps spiritually struggling is because you're trying to do the Christian life alone and you cannot do it. Think of the foot that was just hacked off. That is you. That is you. But also, you are actually hindering 
the body of Christ, this is what's so crazy, from actually maturing. It is you. It is you that is meant to be a part of something that brings about the development, maturing, and flourishing of a body. Here's the thing. Why do I drive this home? I'm trying to be sensitive because I was just like you. I hated going to church when I was in college. There. There it is. I didn't like it. I didn't like growing up in church. I didn't. And so it was a struggle for me. I'm just saying, I can look back on my college years and know that I struggled because I was so isolated. I can tell you about the struggles in my life because I was so isolated. I was a dead foot. Useless. Useless. I want to encourage you to don't be like me. I just want to encourage you. Let's go back to the dinner illustration as we close. We said that trying to pay for your dinner out of your own efforts would ultimately be seen as offensive to the free grace that had been given to you. Everything's free. Come freely. Eat freely. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And we see here that Paul is talking about walking together as a body. Different members living out the different gifts that God has given them. And the only way that you and me are ever, 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 y'all, going to be able to live this way is to look to a man that was torn apart from the very essence of unity. On the cross, Jesus Himself was forsaken by His Father. The eternal Son abandoned by His Father and His human nature. He was tossed about, so to speak. For in us, that the heavens broke up and open and poured out the full force of divine judgment on Him. And as He was breathing His last, do you know what He said? He said, it is finished. It is finished. Dunzo. Nothing more to be done. Complete. There is nothing more that you can do. And how often do we think the Christian life is this? Jesus died on the cross. He saved me. Now it's my job to kind of take up the reins and go from here. And that is not the Christian life. Jesus says it's finished. I've done it. Now not. not. Now you go do your part. It's finished. What this means is, is the Christian life is lived out in grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Life in the body is meant to be done by reliance upon the Spirit and by His grace. The only way that unity, diversity, and maturity can be had is by grace. And that's why Paul gave you three whole chapters of it. The Christian life is to be lived out in grace. Let's pray that God would make these things real on our hearts. God, a lot was said tonight. We had to put our thinking caps on to think about it. And so I pray that You would make things real on our hearts, these things that are hard for us to understand and grasp. Please, O Lord, do this for Your name's sake. And we ask it in Your name. Amen.